Jesus is alive. Amen. Amen. I'll be in John chapter 20. The scripture will be on the monitor to my right and to my left. It says this in verse 1 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Apparently, Mary, and in the other Gospels, the word we is used. So apparently, Mary, and perhaps a friend of hers or two, decided to visit the tomb just a couple of days after Jesus was put in it to lay to rest forever. Now, we know from other texts that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were rushed to prepare Jesus' body for the burial and probably didn't do all that good of a job. I mean, after all, it was a rushed moment, an unplanned, spontaneous, quick prepare Christ's body for the tomb. And so Mary, out of a tender heart, desiring to make a gesture of service to her Lord and King who had departed from her, decides to wake up before the sun wakes her up and was likely with a friend or two to go and find that tomb. Now, the principal concern would have been, how do we get the stone out of the way to finish the preparations of the body? Perhaps she was going to appeal to the Roman guards' better nature and, hey, can you give us a hand? I don't know. History doesn't tell us. But can you imagine the mixed feelings inside of Mary as she desired to go and finish this process that was rushed? Oh, if only I could give my Lord a little bit more dignity and show up to his place of rest and I could put the final linens on his body and I could make it look nice. A gesture bringing dignity to the person, the teacher, the, the rabbi, the friend that she loved and adored and admired so much. Can you imagine the uh, mixture of emotions that she felt that morning as she was stumbling through the darkness, looking for just the right tomb? Perhaps a modern-day equivalent would be that you or I would visit Crown Hill Cemetery and find that loved one that we loved so much, perhaps bringing some flowers to the gravestone giving it some beauty or some dignity just before the sun rose. That was Mary's reality that morning as she skipped her coffee to hit the trail to find that tomb again. The emotions of anticipation of, I've got my linen, I'm going to finish the burial process, I'm going to figure out how to get to my Lord. And then she was met with unfair fathomable implications when she saw that the stone had been rolled to the side. She saw that the stone had been rolled to the side. And her grief graduated to grief panic, grief despair, despair on despair, insult to injury. 
And she jumped, rightfully so, to conclusions. We don't know where they have taken him. This cry. You see, in that day, grave robbing was common because a mummified body had value in the marketplace. And so rightfully so, as Mary approaches the, the empty tomb and sees that the, roll, the stone had been rolled to the side, she comes to the conclusion that, no, that it can't be. It can't be that my Lord and my Savior's body now has been undignified beyond what it was just two days before. And so now her pain is something more than pain. It's pain on pain. It's grief on grief, despair beyond our wildest comprehension. I imagine that the last two nights she had been laying awake in her bed, unable to sleep. Perhaps the cries of her Savior were ringing in her head. She couldn't get them out as she's hearing the cries of Christ on the cross and she's doing everything she can to move on from that horrible moment in history as she witnessed the death, the unfair crucifixion of the rabbi, the teacher, the Lord, Jesus. So she's sleep-deprived, and she's still full of a heart of service and desiring to offer a dignity to the, to the Lord. And Oh, Mary. Mary, I can just about see you running from that tomb. I can see you run from that tomb so fast, Mary. There's this grief, this despair, this sadness, this loss upon loss. I can see her eyes dilated out of shock. I can see her feet bloodied because her sandals flipped off as she's running to go find the other disciples. I can see her garments being torn by the rocks of the cactuses that are relevant in the Middle East. I can see her doing whatever she can to quicken the pace to get to the other disciples to break this horrible news that we don't know where they have taken him. Can you hear her heavy breathing? I can. Can you see her dilated eyes because of her shock? Can you see her hair a mess? Her garments torn. As shock did its job. And out of an adrenaline rush, she finds the disciples. Oh, Mary, I bet you were so hopeless. I bet your hopelessness was paired with panic and fear and shock sleep-deprived, already mourning the death of your rabbi, teacher, and friend, but now your rabbi and teacher and friend's body is degraded, undignified, fearful that it's going to be sold in the marketplace for monetary value. I can only picture Mary's face as she finds the disciples. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
Perhaps John was more athletic. I don't know. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth that was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Peter and John, likely in the upper room, the upper room was where they had just dined with Jesus just a few days before. We're talking about a memory that was actively living in their imagination just a few days before. They were in the upper room, lounging with Christ, enjoying a fare of bread and wine. When Jesus took that and characterized it as his body and his blood, initiating the communion meal to remember what it is that he was about to do for them. I can only imagine a room full of disciples and Jesus sharing laughter and jokes and food and drink. And the memory of that moment burned into their imaginations as something not to be forgotten. I mean, after all, Mary knew where to find them. So it is likely that they were in the upper room. But at this time, they probably weren't there to party. I imagine Peter and John in that upper room doing what they can to discover a, a sense of Christ's presence in their midst. Well, maybe, just maybe, if I'm, I'm in the room where Jesus was, I might remember a, the vernacular of his voice or the smile. Maybe I can get a, an image in my mind, a smile of his face again. It's no different than you or me. Our modern day equivalent might be going to the room of someone who's been departed and we haven't touched the pictures or the clothes or the bed. We left it as it was. Maybe, just maybe, out of desperation and hope, I could get a sense of presence for this person departed. So here are Peter and John in the worst moments of their life, grasping for any hope that they might gain from being in the upper room. And then Mary shows up. Panicked Mary. Shocked Mary. Mary with the messy hair and bloody feet because Mary ran from the empty tomb with what she thought was news upon news beyond their wildest comprehension. Can you picture Peter and John's face when Mary entered the room? Breathing heavily, trying to catch her breath, doing whatever she could to communicate to Peter and John that I was, I was just at the tomb and he's not there. They've taken him. I don't know where they've put him. Lightheaded out of lack of oxygen, dilated pupils because of shock, falling over because of running so far so fast with this moment of terror. Can you imagine what Peter and John might have been thinking in that moment? Can you imagine their eyes widening, their jaws hitting the floor, 
Maybe a reactionary response as the chairs kicked over behind them by the energy of them jumping to their feet. And can you imagine the mixed thoughts that were going through John and Peter's heads? Mary hasn't slept in a couple days. Maybe she's seen things. Maybe she's right. Maybe, maybe his body was robbed by a grave robber. Can you imagine the unthinkable? Or perhaps there was some mixture of rage and bewilderment in Peter and John's stomach as they were hearing and processing the words of Mary and her panic and her grief and her despair and her shock. And so what did they do? They did what any other human would do. They would investigate. And so they got to their feet and they ran as fast as they could. Can you picture these two buffoons running to the tomb as quickly as they could, pushing each other out of the way, trying to be the first one to get to the tomb with all kinds of thoughts going through their heads. It's still dark, after all. Maybe Mary went to the wrong tomb. Most of these tombs look the same. I mean, we're in the desert. Things kind of look similar. So excuse and justification and reasoning away Mary's panic and, and grief and, well, I've got to see this for myself. I've got to see this for myself. And so they get to the tomb. And John, he just stops right before it. He doesn't go into it. And Peter, well, he runs right into it. And in that moment, they, they see something, a bewilderment, a mystery, a mixture of rage, anger, disappointment, but unusual hope, confusion. What is going on here? Can you picture this drama? Mary running from the grave. Peter and John running to the grave. It's like a horror movie gone wrong. You see, I can actually tell you why you make the decisions that you make. I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell all of you can tell all of you, I can tell all of you why you make the decisions that you make. Like Mary, either you are running from pain, or like John and Peter, you are seeking to feel alive. This governs all of the decisions that you make. You are either running from pain or you are seeking to feel alive. You see, we have in our modern era in the church context, we have over-spiritualized the Marys, the Peters, the Johns of Scripture. We have 
venerated them. Not quite worshiped them, but treated them much differently than we treat each other. We've venerated them, which is a little lower than worship, a little higher than regular treatment. But these were just normal people, just like you and just like me. Very normal, very real, everyday people. We are just like them, running from pain or seeking to feel alive. You are either running from the tomb or you are running to the tomb. You are either running from death or you are running towards death. You see, all of us in this room are like Mary and Peter and John. And there is a past in our past, and it's dark. And you are running from pain because you have a dark past. And because in your family of origin, or because in your upbringing, in your formative years, there was a trauma, or there was a breakdown. And when you recall that pain, or the loss you experienced, your amygdala actually takes over. There's this little thing called fear that takes over the cerebral hemisphere of your cap, your brain, your amygdala's trauma response will tell you to mitigate that fear in the ways that you know how. All of us have a dark past. And when the memory of that dark past surfaces and bubbles over in our spirit, our amygdala tells us to mitigate the pain in the ways that we know how. It is amazing how a full bottle of wine can stare into your soul and smile and say, all you need is me. It's amazing how a full bottle of painkillers on your bathroom shelf can stare into the human spirit and say, I'm all you need, and smile. You are running from pain. Or, like John and Peter, you're seeking to feel alive, and you're seeking to feel alive because everything in your life feels dead. I mean, after all, you had a father who abandoned you in your formative years. And so, daughter, you long for the affection of a man. And the way that you've coped with that affection is getting caught in the whirlwind of online dating and chat rooms and one-night stands, and you move through men like napkins. You're seeking to feel alive. Or your mother died when you were young, brother, and so you mitigate that pain. Your amygdala takes over, and you surround yourselves with as many women as you possibly can because you just want the acceptance and the tender embrace of a woman in your life, and you'll take it in any way they offer it to you. Or you grew up dirt poor, and so you've made your life about the accumulation of material possessions, the making of money as its sole purpose. Because after all, you grew up dirt poor. 
you're seeking to feel alive. You are either running from pain or you are seeking to feel alive. We are all Marys, we are all Johns, and we are all Peters. You have a dark past. The power and the hope of Easter is that Jesus can help you exit your dark past. The power of Easter is that Jesus can find you trapped in your dark past and show you the way out of your dark past. The power of Easter is that Jesus had the power to roll his own stone away, and he can do that for you too, if you'd let him. That's the joy of Easter. I mean, after all, what John discovered was breathtaking. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, referring to speedy John here, also went inside. He saw and he believed. What did John see? What was it about that moment that moved John to believe something fresh and new in his life? Well, you see, a grave robber would have never taken a mummified body and sold the body naked because that would have not fetched the grave robber any money. John saw the linen. John saw the cloth. A grave robber would have never taken the linen off or the cloth off. History tells us that it was perfectly in its place. John saw something and believed something. This is not your evidence rejected, I want to believe what I want to believe because I want to believe it kind of belief. That's what flat earthers do, right? A flat earther is like, I'm going to reject all of the evidence. I want to believe this because I want to believe it because I want to believe it. Now, I know that none of you in this room are a flat earther. And if you are, we've got a prayer room and a baptistry, and we want to see God break through in your life. Yeah, maybe you're not a flat earther, but you are a sentimentalist. And your belief is predicated on tradition. Easter is powerful enough to put me in the room on Easter morning, but not powerful enough to help me out of my own tomb. I'll show up, but I ain't coming out. I'll show up to the celebration, but I love the comfort and familiarity of my own tomb. Keep me there. You're a sentimentalist. Your belief is predicated on tradition. You're here, but you ain't coming out of that tomb. Or you're a cynic. You're a cynic. And your belief is predicated on Obligation. You see, your girlfriend got you here, brother. <laughs> or your boyfriend begged you to come, sister. Or your husband or your wife was, please, please, it's Easter. Okay. I'll go. 
but just this once, just this once. Or student or young adult, your parents drug you here, baiting you with the lunch afterwards. I'll take you to lunch. Well, where are we going? Anywhere you want to go. All right, I'll go. You see, you're a sentimentalist. Your belief is based on tradition. Or you're a cynic. Your belief is based on obligation. But that is not what John experienced. Now, some of y'all, I can, I can hear your thoughts right now. I don't need you to tell me what to believe, Mr. Preacher Man. I'll believe what I want to believe because I want to believe it. If that is how you have formed your belief system and process, I am here to hijack that process. If your belief is self-informed, you have closed in the walls of your own tomb. And there you will be comfortable and familiar with the dark walls, forgetting where the stone that rolls away even is. You must be courageous, like John. Because the subjugation of your beliefs in this moment are keeping you in the tomb. Instead, a natural rhythmic human belief experience starts with the public belief. The public belief is just what I say. A public belief is... I believe in a higher power. I just don't know which power that is. I believe in intelligent design. I'm just unsure of who's the intelligent one. It makes you sound just spiritual enough to be admired and respected, but it doesn't cost you anything. It's your public belief. It's the way you save face. It's your public belief. It's to make sure that nobody can tell you otherwise. But it's based on your private belief. And the private belief is not what you say out loud. It's what you think inside your head. This is the thoughts that are going through your mind in the privacy of your own time. And it usually sounds something like, I believe in my own power. And I believe in controlling the destiny of my own life. That is a public belief. And that is a private belief. And if that is your belief system, the gospel hijacks that system. You see, when John walked into the tomb, he saw linen. Put yourself in John's shoes for a second. Can you put yourself in his reality and walk into that tomb and see the linen? What was he thinking? What was he thinking? Wait a second. The linen is still here. This grave was not robbed. I mean, I know a criminal's dumb, but he ain't that dumb. He's going to take the body and sell it mummified. Jesus' body was brutalized. It would have been an unrecognizable mummy. I mean, there was no value to that. Why was the linen here? Why is the linen still here? This grave was 
not robbed, could it be that the unthinkable has actually happened? That the power from heaven in the hands of Jesus rolled his own stone away by his own power and might. This was not a public belief or a private belief. This was a core belief, which is what you discover. Belief systems are a discovery process where you come into the shoes of John and say, I have way less power than I realized I had. And Christ has far more power than I could have ever imagined. And if Christ can roll his own tombstone away, maybe he could roll mine too. You see, there's a sentimentalist in this room who's trapped in a tomb. And there's a cynic in this room who's trapped in the tomb. You've just been there way longer than you need to be. Because Jesus had the power to move the stone. And it took this drama, this scene of pain, this running on Mary's behalf, and then this running on Peter and John's behalf to discover something for the first time. But Jesus' body wasn't robbed by some clever grave robber. They got lucky that night. Something else was happening in that space. Would, would you stand to your feet just momentarily right now? Would you just, would you just get up right where you are and just stand where you are? and Just, just stand there for, for a moment. I just want to speak some words of life over my sentimentalist in the room. I want to speak words of permission over you, sentimentalist. Because right now your belief system is wrapped up in tradition and that tradition is keeping you in your tomb. You believe in the power of Easter, but not in the power of resurrection. I want to speak words of life over the cynic in the room. He's here out of obligation. How familiar have you gotten with your tomb? Have you gotten so cozy with it? Have you gotten so comfortable with it that you've forgotten where the door is? Would you just bow your heads? Would you just close your eyes? I just want to speak words of life over all of you in this moment, in this time, in this, in this sacred set-apart moment. Jesus spent three days in that tomb, friends, and he was like, that's enough. Some of you have been in your tomb for like three years. Heck, 30 years. Why would you voluntarily stay in your tomb longer than Jesus stayed in his? Can I get a witness in the room right now that believes that Jesus can help you get out of your own tomb because he got out of his? You've gotten so familiar with your darkness. You've gotten so comfortable with your loss. You've gotten so accustomed to your pain that you look around your tomb, you can't see cracks of light. You don't know where the door is because you are in your tomb and it's become your home. Do you really want that, friend? Or do you want the power of the living, breathing God to break you out of your tomb the way that he broke himself out of his?
There's a girl in this room. There's a boy in this room. There's a man, there's a woman in this room right now who's preferred the familiarity of tombness for far too long. I want to invite you to trust in a Savior who rolls his stone and yours, but you must let him. You must discover something. You must have the courage to peek into that tomb and discover something. That Jesus is God and he loves you. And he loves you too much to let you wallow in your death, in your tomb, in your deadness. Pick up your heads and look to your Savior. He loves you. He wants you out of that darkness. That darkness has no authority over your life. That darkness has no authority over your children's lives. Would you believe in a powerful God who sets people free from their tombs? There's a people in this room that need to hear for the first time that the darkness has no authority over your tomb any longer, but instead can set you free from your tomb. You just must look to the Savior and discover something that he's powerful and he's good and he offers it to you freely. And all he is asking you to do is to push that door open. He's unlocked it, friend. Push it open. Take a step of faith. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to speak to the person on the fence right now in this moment. You don't know what to do next. Well, you probably should do what Mary did or John and Peter did and run and run to the prayer room and ask for the spirit anointing prayer of heaven by people who love Jesus to pray healing over your life so that strongholds are broken and idols are tipped over. So Holy Spirit, in this moment, this is your ministry. Would you just break through in the room and break into hearts? There is a man, there is a woman, there is a child, there is a young adult in this room that needs to take a step of faith and get baptized which is quite simple, a outward expression of an inward decision that I want out of my tomb. So Spirit, would you move that person? And if you're under the sound of my voice, person, we have a, 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 a bathroom in the back that's private. You can change. We have a change of clothes for you. The water is warm. It would be a privilege and an honor to dunk you out of your tomb. Do not leave the sacred space of the house of the Lord still trapped in your tomb. The time is now, friend. The time is now, brother. The time is now, sister. Don't let another Easter go by being a sentimentalist or a cynic, but instead be a freed person who steps voluntarily out of a tomb that was broken on your behalf. Oh, you are so loved empty tomb is proof of that. In these moments of worship and contrition, I invite you to do what the Spirit is moving you to do by prayer, by worship, by song, by baptism. In God's name we say these things, amen.